evening everyone, welcome to our live broadcast. So we're s moving right along to Anguttara Nikaya, Book of Fives, Sutta 23. Upakilesa Sutta Upakilesa And the Buddha does his thing by giving us a simile It's a common instrument used by the Buddha for helping us, us to think of helping us to picture or visualize or un easily understand something that's foreign to us by means of something that's more familiar. And funnily enough, there's, there's little as unfamiliar to us as our own mind. We're not very familiar with our own minds. So to understand our minds and the way they work, the Buddha gives us a simile. The simile he gives us here is on gold. Panchi me bhikkave jatarupasa upakilesa There are amongst these five upakilesa, these five defilements of gold. So when you pull gold out of the ground, it's it's not pure. This is, I think, what they mean by carat, six carat, twelve carat, twenty-four carat. It's a measure of the purity of the gold. Because if you if you mix it with something, it becomes brittle. And they knew this, of course, even in the time of the Buddha. Najeva mudu hoti, it is not pliable. Nakamaniyang, it is not wieldy. Napabasarang, it is not shiny, it is not radiant, brilliant. There's five, the Buddha, the Buddha gives five defilements, and I was, I'm assuming there may not be exactly five, but it's convenient for our purposes. What are the five? Ayo, Lohang, Tipu, Si, Sang, Sajjang. These are just different kinds of metals. Sid, Sajjang is silver. Si, Sang is lead. Tipu is also lead, tin maybe. Loha, copper, aya, iron. In fact, they they often put these things in the in in with the gold in order to make it stronger. You can't uh, really have a gold have gold jewelry that's twenty four carats because it would bend and deform it's too soft but that's one of the great things about gold it's a very special element that's why it's so expensive is that it's incredibly malleable and yet stainless right gold is what they use for uh, some sort of superconductor or for conductors it's used in specialized purposes because it's stainless and it doesn't corrode. And it's malleable, it's wieldy. The mind is the same. In the same way, or just so, monks, there are these five defilements of the mind. 
that make the mind unmalleable, unwieldy, make it not shine, make it not useful for proper concentration, samma samadhyati, asamanangkayaya, for the purpose of defiling, of destroying defilements. So the Buddha gives a specific purpose of the mind that we as all Buddhists strive towards, that we hold up as our goal. If you want to think about the Buddhist goal, what is the Buddhist goal? And how do you therefore um, measure your progress? It's based on the destruction of the defilement destruction of the taints, destruction of those qualities of mind that are to your detriment and to the detriment of others. But the ordinary mind is incapable of this. The ordinary mind is incapable of its own betterment. It's brittle. And the ordinary mind breaks at the slightest provocation, the slightest tension. It's unmalleable, unwieldy. It lumps around like a sloth. Unable to do anything great for its own benefit. Because just like gold, it is defiled. And it's defiled by five defilements, likewise. And these five defilements, in this case, are described as being the five hindrances. Kama chando vyapado tinamidhang tinamidhang udhacca kukuchang vichikicca Kama chanda Kamachanda is desire for sensuality, sensual desire, or even sensual liking. It's not just desire. Chanda is the appreciation of sensuality, hmm. which is something we all, many people pride themselves on, right? The love of good food, the love of fine art, the love of good music the appreciation of beauty considered to be a high culture that's why Buddhism isn't isn't yet conquering the world because the world in generally wants to have nothing to do with things that the Buddha talked about no one would ever want to admit or even consider the idea that appreciation of the finer aspects of sensuality are to our detriment. We think of them as being the, the pinnacle of our existence, our ability to enjoy these things. And there's a reason for that, because they're, it's not easy to enjoy them the luxury of being able to enjoy sensuality is um, well not to be taken for granted though we often do take it for granted and we allow it to intoxicate us and blind us to the potential dangers of life and we do so willingly thinking that at least it's an escape right enjoying sensual pleasures is an escape from the sufferings of life. It's what makes it all worthwhile, right? At least we have this. This evening a man came into our center just off the street. I think he lives in the neighborhood or maybe in Hamilton. I have to say we must be doing something right. Whoever did all that advertising, we maybe have to talk about that and keep up the advertising because people are learning about us and it's great to be a Great to be a resource. I remember um, 
back when I was looking for a place to stay in Hamilton, I looked up in the Yellow Pages Buddhist monastery. I ended up just showing up one evening. Anyway, this guy shows up and uh, he wants to sit and meditate. And so he looked at the cushions and he said, well, normally he sits quite high on three three couch cushions stacked on top. And he said, is that okay? Or he said, uh, something like, is that okay? And I said, well, I don't, I don't mind. Or is that, a, is that, is, is there a problem with that or something? And I said, well, I have no problem with it. And, I, and then I said, but if you were my student, I would tell you not to get too comfortable. And he looked at me quite kind of puzzled. Prime example of this problem. He looked at me kind of puzzled and, 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 and was quite surprised to hear this philosophy. He's not someone who knows as much about Buddhism as I understand. Um, but he was quite surprised by the philosophy. I proceeded to tell him that the enjoyment of comfort is involved with um, the production of aversion to suffering. So if you get too comfortable, you, 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 you increase your aversion and you lower your tolerance for pain. And you know, he, he said, yes, but you know, don't we naturally dislike pain? I said, well, that's really the problem. It's not natural, it's a it's a habit, and we increase that habit every time we we reaffirm the disliking of it. And what I didn't, you know, I didn't go on to say. I didn't have much time with him. He ended up sitting and meditating. Um, likewise, it's true is that you get attached to comfort. You get attached to the pleasure of sitting on on the seat, and so they work together, and you become right mess, unable to deal with pain and unable to be be parted from pleasure. So it's not an escape, it's an addiction. It's not static, it's not like something we can rely upon. It's something that increases and, and, and leads us in a specific direction. Now, for the average ordinary human being, they're able to, heck, I don't even know what that means, but in, in, a, in a privileged society, one of those societies where um, people live a lot better off than most of the rest of the world, or much of the rest of the world anyway, uh, one is able to enjoy life and, and deal with the stresses of life as well, and have the ups and downs, and so get through life passably crying sometimes, suffering from time to time, but from time to time feeling pleasure. So if, you're, if your goal is to be a chunk of unrefined gold, by all means, these hindrances are it's important to take them in context and if your intention is just to be an ordinary human being well, you may not need to be concerned with things like sensual desire but I think even that is short-sighted because life as a human doesn't last forever you do get old, sick and die no matter what and the problem is that death isn't the end you can't die saying well that was good enough because good enough may have been as good as it ever gets, and when you die, it might get sudden. It might get worse, you know, depending on your state of mind. A mind with much aversion. You see, I mean, the the big point, the real point is, happiness doesn't come from avoiding the things you dislike. It's not the way to live. It's it's how we're taught to live. But it's not sustainable. You can die happily because you've been able to avoid all the problems, but when you die, you can't no longer avoid them. With the sickness, with the old age, with the pain, with the fear, with the uncertainty. You'll be faced with all the stuff you've kept repressed. Any meditator can tell you that in our mind there's a great deal 
that we're clinging to that we don't realize and once you start to meditate they, they, it all starts to come up you'll have past memories come up that you thought you forgot but that you're still very much clinging to so Kamachanda no you are not best served by enjoying art and fine wine and uh, music not actually satisfying you. It doesn't actually make you a happier person. It's a funny thing. We think, yeah, this is, you know, this is part of my happiness. You can measure it. Take a measurement of... We can do a study. We'll take some ordinary individuals, we'll try and get a cross-cut, cross-selection, and then we'll have them undertake something thoroughly enjoyable. Half of them, let's say, because we need a control group. The other half would, what, would do something banal like uh, move boxes from one room to another, or they would organize files in a file room or something. You know. The other group would indulge in great sensual pleasure for some period of time, say a month. And before this all, we would measure their level of happiness. And then after it, we would again probably spend some time, maybe a week, put them back in their lives and figure out some way of defining, of describing, or figuring out how happy they are. It may be a difficult experiment to do because there will be many other factors, of course. A person who had indulged in great sensual pleasure might, through their addiction to it, go on to seek out more sensual pleasure in their lives and thereby actually be happier for a time. But there is a study you could do because the reality is unavoidable that uh, indulgence in sensuality doesn't make you happier. It just makes you want it more. That's all it does a hindrance destroys your clarity of mind it colors and taints the mind with thick film of delusion Kamachanda Vyapada is the second one Vyapada is aversion or actually directly it means ill will I think that's how we usually translate it let's look at the etymology Vyapada ill will towards something it doesn't have to be towards a person that usually is but I think for, for purpose of meditation it doesn't we have to understand it to mean any type of anger any type of anger is, is a hindrance it inflames the mind this is the other side of the coin of course this one's easier to see most people are pretty clear that anger doesn't help you think better, help you solve your problems better. Sometimes we think of righteous anger. You know, I, I, I have a right to get angry about this. You have a right to do whatever you want. It doesn't mean it's actually good for you or it actually serves your purpose. Sometimes we even think that. We think if you don't get angry, you won't accomplish anything. Because anger can be associated with um, actually wholesome states, not directly. Not during the anger, but it can be involved in a, a, a realization that someone has done something wrong and an intention to try and fix it. But fixing it usually is, when anger gets involved, it usually involves hurting someone, which is of course not a good thing. It's, it's a habit in and of itself, a habit of cruelty, a habit of disregard for the feelings and concerns of others. It's a bad thing. It keeps you from being at peace keeps you from being happy, keeps you from seeing clearly. It's a hindrance. Tinamidhang. Tinamidha is this unwieldiness of mind. Right? Could be a long I. Tinamidha. This is the mind that is unwieldy. It often comes from 
desire and aversion, but it's this quality of mind that is uh, dull, that is uh, unmalleable, that is stuck, and that is uh, slothful. Oh, we got we, we translate it as sloth and torpor. I don't know what the word is, torpid, I don't know. This is the mind that is that is lazy or tired, the mind that is exhausted. It comes from too much concentration, not enough effort. These are all imbalances in the mind to some extent. That of course is a hindrance because you need a mind that is alert and, and awake in order to understand, in order to in order to practice, in order to cultivate good states. You need effort. Tinamita is a state of mind that counters your effort, your energy, your awareness, alertness. And it's paired with Udacha Kukucha, which are mind states quite opposite. These are the mind states that can't sit still. Restlessness, worry, anxiety, the mind that is deluded about things, deluded either through simple distraction, simple inability to, inability to stay with an object long enough to understand it, or the involvement, the engagement in every little thing that arises. So the anal analyzing of things, an experience occurs and the mind is off running. Papancha, remember papancha, diversifying it, ex extrapolating on it. That's undacha. Kukucha is worry, anxiety, state of mind that perhaps feels guilty as well. but a concern, the inability to let go, the inability to stay aloof from experiences. When something comes up, we worry. We worry about potential consequences. We, we stress over things we've done in the past, or we worry about the future. Kukucha. And finally, Vichikicha, doubt, confusion. These are all hindrances, they get in the way. Keep us from seeing clearly, doubt is a big one. And doubt is something that often people pride themselves on, unfortunately. Doubt might be a good preliminary state in that it keeps you from believing something unconditionally, but one need not have doubt to do so. All that you need is, is a sense of reason and logic. You don't have to doubt something. If it seems suspicious and dubious, you don't have to doubt it. You just have to be certain of its dubious nature. On the other hand, something might be staring you right in the face and you still doubt it. Is it really? When you practice meditation, so much good from comes from it. Then one day, nothing good seems to come from it, and you suddenly doubt it, irrationally. Because you have ample evidence of the good of it, but out of delusion, because you're not really, you don't really understand meditation or how it works, doubt arises. Arises out of delusion. It's a problem because it prevents you from practicing. Confusion does as well. If you're not sure of which way to go, or you're kind of muddled, unsure, con confused, all this, not so good. These are the five hindrances. So definitely something we have to keep in mind. And why should we keep them in mind? Well, in, in brief, as I've already said, it's because they get in the way of our meditation. But the Buddha goes into some detail to really drive home how important this is, the difference between someone who 
has these states than someone who doesn't. If a person wishes to have magic, gain magical powers, vanishing, walking through walls apparently, flying through space, walking on water, traveling in space like a bird, touching the sun and the moon with your hand. If you've ever been on a drug trip, you get a feeling of how this could potentially be possible. Anyone who's had out-of-body experiences might have a feeling as well of how some of these things might be possible. There's much more out there than meets the eye. But it's all in the realm of the mind, so physics is unable to experience it. There's this curious nature of eluding the physical, a physical measurement and so on. Then um, this is a suitable basis. The, the five, one may do so. What did they say? What is the translation here? Uh, one is capable of realizing it. There being a suitable basis. If one gives up the five hindrances, this is possible. Claro clairvoyance, hearing things far away. Clairaudience, seeing things far away reading people's minds understanding a person with anger as being full of anger a person with lust being full of lust remembering past lives if one wishes this all of this is possible with a strong mind a mind that is strong like gold and that's what makes gold such a good simile is because gold is strong well, I mean strong isn't the wrong word but it's pure and malleable Pure gold is a very special thing. It's almost magical. If one wishes to see karma, see people going according to their karma, this is all possible. One is able to see people being born and dying. It's a great magical power. Really understand how karma works from life to life watching people go according to their bent, according to their state of mind. And finally, of course, most importantly, if one wishes, may I, with the destruction of the taints in this very life, realize for myself with direct knowledge the taintless liberation of mind, liberation by wisdom, and having entered upon it, may I dwell in it. One is capable of realizing it, there being a suitable basis. Tatra tatreva saki bambatang papunati sati sati ayatane. So the five hindrances is one of the first things we teach meditators. Teach you to understand, to see the arising and ceasing, to see the cause and the effect, to really get a sense of how they work. And we do this by as with everything else, dwelling with them, tasting them, watching them, observing them, and reminding ourselves objectively they are simply what they are, not more, not less. So when we like or want something, we'll say liking, liking, or wanting, wanting. When we dislike something, we'll say disliking, disliking. We feel Tired, we'll say tired, tired, slothful. When we feel worried or distracted, we'll say worried, worried, or distracted, distracted. And when we have doubt, we'll say doubting, doubting, confused, confused. It's one of the first things we teach meditators, so if it wasn't clear, uh, even if it was clear, it's good to have a reminder. So there we go our daily dose of Dhamma. Today we study the five hindrances. There we go. Now we'll take questions. You notice with the update on the site, thank you so much for this, for the to the, the IT team. If you go to the answered questions, 
we now have video links. So I suppose the next step would be to go through these questions and transcribe them, as some people have already been doing. I'm not sure how that's going, but some people actually started working on the wiki, and I haven't been keeping up with that. But uh, if you do find a question that you... Well, if you think the answer was somehow useful, please feel free to transcribe it and get involved with the wiki. We apparently have a wiki at wiki.sirimangalo.org It says, of course, permission denied. Of course, I have the wrong username and password. What's going on here? Ah, there. Yes, well, there's nothing here yet. So the wiki is still not doing anything. But it will have something eventually. And if you're interested in doing transcribing and maybe transcribing some of the old videos with answers that were perhaps more comprehensive, please feel free. Okay, questions? Bhante, my effort is beginning to increase naturally, seeing its need and benefit. Would doing anything proactively help cultivate effort stronger as a habit? like making an intention every day to practice more, for example. Thank you. Sure. Yeah, aditana, aditana is the word for uh, making a determination, like a schedule. A schedule is a kind of determination. You vow to do something. You, you determine in your mind, I will do this. It's quite can be quite powerful. And it's good to cultivate that kind of a power, the ability to do according to your intention. Robin, you didn't click the answering, did you? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't. Okay. Do you want to do that over? I apologize. Bhante, my effort is beginning to increase naturally, seeing its need and benefit. Would doing anything proactively help cultivate effort stronger as a habit, like making an intention every day to practice more, for example? Sorry, I just got log locked out here. Right. Um, yes, definitely. So. As I said, determination, making a determination, making a vow to do something is uh, can be quite useful. So making a schedule is that kind of thing. But um, it's not magic. You can't just decide you're going to do something and do it. You have to be you have to be cognizant of your limits and work to increase them, to improve them. Look at your trouble areas and see your habits, the habits that keep you from meditating and work at them, meditate on them. Question about translation in mantra. When saying turning in walking meditation, is that a reference for a turning, or there is a turning now, or I am turning. Because you answered me once that we need to see our control, therefore there is self in viewing the Dhammas. Because when breathing there is only, there is only, there is self. That's okay, I think we can go with, with just that as the question. I'm not, okay. not sure about all the rest of that. Um, so, yeah, the Buddha would use, the words that the Buddha used were single words that meant things like, I am turning. So the I wasn't that big of a deal, first person speech, because he didn't actually say I, it would be gachami, which means, it's a first person verb, meaning I am walking, for example. Nisi nomhi, I am seated, and it's for sitting. Um, but 
technically we're not saying I am turning, we're saying the foot is turning. So we're referring to a, a part of the body, or, or at best the body is turning. But you don't have to be that technical. Like the point of Mahasi Sayada makes this point that using the, using the first person doesn't imply any kind of control or, or ego or self. It's just conventional usage of the word. As long as we understand that, it's not really a danger. I mean, through the practice, you're going to see your your you're going to see your attachments to things. You're going to see your ego, as long as you're close and as long as you're somewhat objective. So don't worry about exactly the words you use. The Buddha is quoted to say that to believe nothing unless it agrees with your own reasoning and experience. How does one investigate the claims in Buddhist cosmology like planes of existence and non-human beings? First of all, that's not actually a Buddha quote. It's a fake Buddha quote. He didn't actually ever say that. What he said basically is, basically he said, and it's just a paraphrase, believe nothing. Um, believe nothing for any reason except um, and he didn't actually say it like that, he said don't go by any of the normal reasons why we go by things like because it's our teacher or because of tradition or because of reason and ex not experience exactly but logic and reason and that kind of thing. Experience is perhaps the only um, the only ex exception but it's not just experience, it's when you know for yourself through experience that something's good for you. That's what you should fix, it, fix on. If it's if something you know from experience that something is good for you, like really know for yourself, then you should cultivate it. When you know for yourself clearly that not something is bad, then you should do away with it. So be careful about quotes on the internet. Don't ever go by Buddha quotes on the internet unless you're getting them from fakebuddhaquotes.com, I think, or fakebuddhaquotes.something, because that's the only site that's really reliable. And if you ever find a quote of the Buddha on the internet, go to that site, and you'll be able to find out whether it's a real or a fake one. That being said, how does one investigate the claims in Buddhist cosmology? Well, cultivate magical powers would be a good good uh, a good way good methodology, but you don't have to investigate them because those claims are not important for your practice not directly anyway and I suppose an argument could be made for them playing a part, I mean often people will argue that if you don't if you, if you don't have any evidence of rebirth and that kind of thing, well it's hard it can be hard to really put out effort in your practice that's reasonable, but um, you know it's kind of kind of a dilemma because you can't thereby blame the Buddha for talking about it. You know, it's a part of reality. Just because it's very very difficult for us to comprehend, let alone observe, um, doesn't doesn't make it any less important. So we have to do with explanations and and. Uh, logical arguments and of course my favorite one that many of you are familiar with if you watch my videos is the people who believe in death have 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 to provide evidence not those who believe in continuation because continuation after death is the null hypothesis it says that you know, nothing happens and it's it's arguably the null hypothesis. There's lots of people, of course, that would vehemently deny that. Null hypothesis meaning that it doesn't say anything. If you say that life continues after death, you're not actually saying anything. You're not making any claim. Thereby we call it the null hypothesis. You're just saying that what we experience now continues unimpeded. The person who says, no, death has the power to stop all of that, has to provide some evidence. Of course, they have evidence, circumstantial, but we've got lots of evidence as well, so it's a bit of an argument. 
So it's not that Buddhists believe in death, it's that we, it's not that Buddhists believe in rebirth, it's that we don't believe in death. But right, as for the existence of non-human beings and so on, I wouldn't lose sleep over it. Very difficult to, to, to realize for yourself, probably not worth the effort. Hi Bhante, I stopped doing sitting meditation for a few months. I just started it up again recently and today I had a nightmare. Those nightmares disappear when I was not doing sitting meditation, but I still practiced mindfulness during the day. It's always the same nightmares. I'm on my bed and I know that I'm dreaming, but I just can't move. I'm not sure if there is a link between the two or if it's just a coincidence. Have you ever heard about these experiences? Sometimes I can be mindful during these specific nightmares, so I just know fear, fear, or can't move, can't move. Did I do something wrong? No, it's, I mean, it's called sleep paralysis. It's a common thing. People will actually wake up in the morning and be unable to move for a few minutes until finally they're jolted back into the body. It's a disconnect between the mind and the body. It's a, I mean, we would say it's a sign that you know, the mind and the body are, to some extent, extent separate entities. Um, and that, that, yes, there probably is a connection between that and your meditation. Obviously, you see there appears to be one, but it makes sense because, at least as a beginner meditator, you're cultivating fairly powerful states, often a lot of concentration in the beginning as you force your mind. And that's not, not a good thing but it's a trial and part of the trial and error process. It's quite common for meditators to cultivate somewhat extreme states of concentration. So I guess my question is, are you practicing according to my tradition? And if you are, that would be a good reason to do some walking meditation to help break up those states. So then a good, good aspect of walking meditation that helps counterbalance any extreme concentration states or forcing states because walking meditation is more chaotic to some extent but uh, yeah noting oh, it sounds like you're because you say fear of fear right recommend doing some walking meditation might help to balance your mind but ultimately it's it's not a it's not like you're in danger of anything as long as you don't persist in extreme practice of forcing or cultivating concentration, eventually it'll all work itself out. It's a sort of a beginner growing pains kind of thing as your mind starts to slowly uh, settle into a more mindful life. You're, 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 it's an upset, you know. Meditation is, is changing. It's like a revolution. Your mind is going through a revolution. There's a lot of upheaval involved. Lots of different things can come of that. Not many are, are in any way dangerous. And it, practicing in our tradition, I've never come across a, sort of a dangerous state, just kind of odd or strange. And they usually have nothing to do with the actual technique. They have much more to do with practicing incorrectly as you learn how to practice correctly, which is a, an ordinary part of any learning process. I have a concern that arises during formal meditation and after I am aware these forms need to be sure and are available to the word public. The question I ask many are going to be very skeptical. My only motivation is for my independence, inner freedom and higher understanding. If anything it would help others in their sufferings. Over 20 years ago I became aware that I would eventually meet Yutadama and he would be a guide to freedom when suffering in my life. This came around 23 years ago when I was messing around with the rocking bed meditation to deal with issues in life. How do I remain unattached and objective toward Yutadama while not freaked out? Especially when I see the big difference it has made. I so far only remind myself he is only a concept and we can always find what he teaches in other ways. That's kind of creepy, huh? Because like 23 years ago was probably when I was doing the rocking bed meditation, which I didn't realize was a thing, and I'm not even sure it is. Sounds like the two of us might be somehow 
karmically connected. Well, don't you say that usually people that, that meet each other and, you know, have relationships with yes. karmic... Sure, I mean, maybe in, maybe in a past life we did this sort of thing together. Well, maybe we, maybe it was our thing. But, you know, I mean, you could also argue that it's sort of a natural. I bet there are other people who have done that. I mean, maybe I even read it somewhere. I can't remember why I started doing that. But it was a natural sort of inclination to do that, I think. Um, right, anyway, just interesting. There are interesting things in this universe, and yeah, we usually point to things like past life as a good, easy way of explaining why they might happen. Could be other reasons, but... How do you remain unattached and objective? I mean, as with anything, it's, it's all about being mindful. When you're, if you're somehow attached, like I know people who have been attached to me because I'm a YouTube person, and there were these two, I don't know if you heard of this, Robin, there were these two uh, young women. Um, so so b when I was really sort of in the beginning of YouTube, and I was more, I would spend more time on my channel, or I would go to my channel every so often. On the channel there would there used to be this um, related channels thing or something, where anyone who had linked to you or, or subscribed to you, they'd be there. And there was one of them was a picture of me, but there was something on my cheek. Uh, so it was the same picture, I think, as my channel, but it was something here. And so I clicked on it, and it was a picture of me with, with lipstick. And uh, their channel... I imagine. <laughs> yeah, and their channel was We Love Monk, We Love the Monk. Oh. And they had this video, uh, this video was just them sitting there saying, yep, we love the monk. <laughs> you know, it's like groupies, I guess you would say. I mean, I, this is, this sort of thing happens. Um, I mean, just... So anyway, it was funny. It was actually a funny story because uh, I posted it on my blog. I said, "Well, you know, love is a good thing, so there's nothing wrong there." But you know, um, anyway, it, it, they were they were embarrassed, and actually, some of my followers—I um, don't know if I could even call them followers—some rather stern individuals went to them and started criticizing them and and telling them they shouldn't do such things. It was disrespectful. <laughs> Yeah, okay, I can get that. And so they shut it down and they were rather mortified. And I think they actually contacted me once about it and apologized. I said, you know, I wasn't really offended. Was, uh, I mean, there is potential for problem. It's not really, certainly not proper to put someone's <laughs> picture with lipstick. But uh, anyway. No, um, and maybe it does apply here as well, is that that kind of feeling that someone has, and, and and thereby any romantic inclination one might have towards another person can be purified without rejecting it. So uh, I, I've had students who who had that sort of you know intention, and I, I dealt I, you know dealt with it in different ways, but eventually realized that simply shunning such a person. Um, is like giving up on them because of a meditation condition. It's ultimately something we would consider to be a, a, a problem that they're having to deal with, and aren't we supposed to help people with these problems? And so I found it much more wholesome to, de to, to redirect, you know, and, and accept, yes, yes. I heard um, there was this one, one of my friends in Thailand, he, a lay, Thai layman, Probably one of the closest people, closest I would have ever got to having a Thai friend. Um, he once described this monk who said, you know, I say let them come, these women who want to disrobe monks, who want to love monks, I say come, love each other. <laughs> but, uh, and I can't remember exactly how he put it, but it was basically, you know, come and love. Um, and then it was something like, but we'll break their hearts kind of thing or something like that. Like you come and the love isn't the problem, it's the attachment that's the problem, right? So love and appreciation for each other is, can actually be a wholesome thing, provided we are clear in, in and, and not just provided, but it's much easier to do that than to just reject and say no. 
that's not allowed. So in this instance might be something similar with everything. You should never feel guilty or or angered or upset, hate yourself, frustrated. You should accept that it is how you are and and heal. Find a way to to understand because through understanding all the bad stuff goes away. If something is really bad then understanding will make it go away. Why? Because you understand that it's bad. You can't pretend that it's bad or convince yourself that it's bad. Only if it really is bad will it go away. And it goes away once you have proper understanding of it. So, glad to hear that the meditation helps. Don't be concerned with such strange coincidences. Don't, don't let anything be more than what it is. It is what it is. It comes, it goes. How does one fix a concentration to effort? Pardon me. How does one fix a concentration to effort on balance? What is an effective way to distinguish between the two in practice? Well, mindfulness is the right way. Mindfulness is that which, or sati is that which which balances them. Sati meaning remembrance, but you know, it's an odd sort of word, but it means um, clear awareness and observation, objectively of the state. So you don't have to distinguish between them. They're, they're quite different, actually. Effort would be um, you know, an energetic state. Concentration would be a focused, still, quiet state. And if they're imbalanced, then you'll have the hindrances of distraction, restlessness, there's too much effort, uh, or sloth and torpor, sort of a lazy, uh, unwieldy state, if there's too much concentration. So when you have those, you note them, and then uh, not gradually the balance comes about through the noting process. I have a question about reincarnation. I read that sometimes a soul can reincarnate into two bodies at the same time. Now, do those split souls rejoin each other at the time of death? like merge into one soul again or just keep going their separate ways this is not a Buddhist, a Theravada Buddhist view, that sort of thing is considered to be not possible do you know if there are any arhats living today? Mm. I want to say that's a question we're not going to answer I don't, I, I, that in general, those types of questions, I think we want to not answer. It's too much speculation and, 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 and I think um, obsession with that kind of thing. Dangerous questions. How long have you been a Buddhist? 17 years. I mark my becoming a Buddhist to this one morning during my first meditation course when I was really, really upset. I went to sleep upset. I woke up at 3 a.m. still upset. I couldn't couldn't meditate that night. I, I was just gotten at my wit's end. And I woke up at 3 a.m. and it was no better. I thought, I'll sleep on it. Woke up, it was no better. 3 a.m., left my kuti, started wandering around aimlessly, and I saw this Buddha image. It's kind of silly. I mean, it's not a good reason to become a Buddhist, but... It made me understand refuge, you know, taking refuge, and why religion is so intoxicating and so um, persuasive. You know, what's the word? So, uh, so good at claiming adherence. I became Buddhist because I went to the Buddha image and I bowed down, and I, I think I may have started crying, but I, I started reciting Buddhang Saranangachami. I really understood what it meant to. Um, rely on something else. So I, I was from that point on, felt like I was going to rely on Buddhism. It actually got a lot easier. So this is the religious experience. I mean, there's nothing particularly Buddhist about what I did, but 
um, this is why people might become Buddhists is because of the, the psychological support Mahasi Sayada talks about it he says uh, you take refuge in the Buddha for psychological support you give yourself over and when we start meditating we say I give myself over to the Buddha I give myself over to the teacher we actually have a ceremony that I've been negligent in not performing but uh, hopefully we can start that up at some time anyway for me 17 years uh, approximately I guess not quite, it'll be, maybe it'll be eight, no, it'll be 17 years this January, coming January. It is said one must refrain from killing living beings. Is gardening forbidden as plants are living beings too? No, plants are not considered, and it's not living beings, it's sentient beings. Actually, that's not even really a, direct translation, but that's the meaning of, uh, of living in, in that sense. Plants are alive, but they're not sentient, so they don't count. Gardening, of course, involves insects and so on, so that's a problem. Yeah, again, this is all about my practice. I'd rather just not go there. My meditation varies from day to day, especially now that I'm back in school. I do a lot of... Uh, ah, anyway, don't get into it. Have you started with the five-minute meditation classes at McMaster again this year? No, I'm not sure that I will. It seems like it seems a daunting proposition, adding that. We'll have to see. This, this semester is heavy. I've got two upper year courses, so yeah, it may be that I've got a lot of writing and reading to do, so maybe that, uh, maybe that this is a heavy term. And I'm not sure about the... F no, it would be a good thing to do. Oh, they've also changed the whole setup for those tables. The tables are no longer in people's paths. So the only people who actually go by the tables are those lining up for Starbucks, because the doors have have they've, they've you know they've renovated that whole area. So I don't know if those tables are going to be of any use at all now. Um, and they're no longer doing the full days, so you have to book morning. It just you know it's just been all those thinking about it. Every time I think about it, it just many things make me stop thinking about it. Everything changed. Mm -hmm. Impermanence. Yeah. Why is conceit more difficult to give up than anger and arrogance? And arrogance maybe has to do with conceit, but anger is more. I mean, this is just conjecture, thinking about it, but anger is more coarse. Conceit is far more refined than, than anger. Hi. Is returning to the breath, rising and falling, not somewhat a form of concentration practice instead of mindfulness? I tend to find myself getting caught on the rising and falling. I also find myself unable to find the correct words for what I'm experiencing. Is this important? Uh, no, so returning to the breath, the rising and falling is... is a, um it's a choice. I mean, the other the other alternative would be to put your mind somewhere else, right? So normally, what we do is look and see what's happening, but instead we uh, we um, we decide to come back. You know, once something disappears, or once we've had enough of something, we decide to come back. It's it's just a choice, one way or the other. It's not really like forcing or something. But call it what you like. It's it's not like it's going to get in the way of your practice just because you come back to the stomach. Um, as far as finding correct words, well, that's a technical problem that has helped over time. All right. So should we answer Benny's questions? No. You don't want to, You don't like the critical? I'm going to go for it. Go for it. You don't want to do it. I'll, I'll say it. It's okay. I won't 
force you to say something like no, that. No, that's okay. No. Dear Bhante, I feel like if you were fully enlightened, you would have answered my questions. Yeah, well, I have rules against answering such questions, so apologize. Dear Bhante, can anyone teach anyone spiritually, or do they need a higher level of consciousness? Anyone can teach spiritually. I mean, there's no police going to stop you. But, okay, but effectively, uh, I mean, effectively, you can just parrot what other spiritual people have, have said. If you don't have anything to parrot, then, then you couldn't. I mean, hey, maybe randomly you could happen to say the right thing to someone. Remember, teaching someone is much more about how they perceive what you say than about what you actually say, or whether you actually, what you feel about what you say. It's not about how you perceive what you're saying. It's how they perceive it. So it's quite possible for someone to pretend to be enlightened and actually really help their student. It's also possible for them not to pretend and to just give information, and that information is enough to help their student. So there's lots of ways that one can teach. I mean, my teacher, Ajahn Tong, would just tell people, go teach, teach as you have been taught. And this was like some these people had been had come to see him and practice for about a week, and he said, yeah, go teach. Teach just as you have been taught. I mean, that's reasonable to me. When can you start calling yourself a Buddhist? I've been practicing for some time, and I went through some meditation courses in a Buddhist temple, but I feel arrogant calling myself a Buddhist. Right. Um, yeah, well, it depends what being a Buddhist means to you. If it means something greater to you than that, then then that's reasonable, but um, we tend to agree that being a Buddhist means following the Buddhist teachings, and I guess you'd want some exclusivity there, in the sense of not just following some of the Buddhist teachings, but trying your best to follow the Buddhist teachings invariably, whether you fail or succeed is another issue. So we don't generally call people not Buddhists just because they do something that goes against the Buddhist teachings, but if they are inclined or, or mm, if they believe in doing things that go against the Buddhist teachings, then you have to say, well, that's not, that person's not Buddhist. It's all how you define it. But in, in general, it's about following the Buddhist teachings and having some respect and and taking the Buddha as your guide and um, giving yourself over to the Buddha in terms of um, following what he what he taught. Does this make sense? I'm still trying to understand the difference between the two. Effort equals the drive to do. Concentration equals the drive to understand. It's a good try, but I don't think so. Effort is related to drive. Hmm. Yeah, there might be something there. Concentration is more related to non-wavering. Staying with something. So too much effort and you, you flit from one thing to another. With too much concentration, and it's um, you're not awake enough to see the to to experience. So you can focus on something without really understanding it. But the effort to see it as it is, effort is required to see it as it is. But I mean, they're quite simple states. I mean, effort is excitement when you're excited, when you're awake. Concentration is when you're focused on something, when you're stuck with something. We actually, in, in our tradition, we talk more about, well, in the Satipatthana Sutta, for example, the Buddha doesn't even mention concentration until the very end, and then only incidentally, but throughout he's talking about effort. So we focus more on effort, I think. That you know, being said, the, the word concentration is used in a general sense as a very important part of the Buddhist path. 
but it's concentration that has effort as its balance. I wouldn't obsess over this, I think. I don't think it's as uh, important to think about as you are doing. You don't have to distinguish things, you just have to recognize things. You're all caught up on questions, Bhante. Good. 10.01. Thanks, Robin, for your help. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Wishing you all a good night. Good practice. Thank you, Bhante. Good night.